It'll be Ephesians 6, 1 through 4. You can follow me on the screen up there. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that a man may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the dis discipline and instruction of the Lord. Thank you. You may be seated. Good morning. How are we doing? Super good. Well, as Jeff already told you, my name is Carl Brower. I'm one of the ministers here on staff at the Parkway Church. Uh, and he also already gave away a little bit of my resume, uh, which is that I do indeed have a master's degree in French horn performance, uh, which is part of the reason I'm up here. So the elders said, have you been to seminary? Do you have a lot of training? I said, well, I do have $100,000 worth of musical education. And they said, man, get up there. Okay. I'd like to begin by praying, uh, and I'd like to just lead us in just a couple minutes of prayer. Uh, I would ask you to pray for yourself and for me, but I'll lead you in that. Uh, let's pray. Uh, just ask you to pray uh, for yourself right now. Just uh, ask the Lord to be near to you, to uh, help you to put aside whatever distractions, frustrations, hindrances that you might have this morning that you bring into this room, that they would be uh, removed by His Spirit, that you would be able to Focus your mind and heart this morning on the Word of God. And then I'd ask you to pray for me. Ask the Lord to be near to me. Help me to be faithful with His Word. Lord, to be uh, aware of what He has spoken to us and to speak rightly about it. Uh, that I might not be hindered uh, by the enemy who would seek to divide and destroy, but instead that I would be uh, faithful to encourage us and lead us into a right understanding of what God has revealed in this text. So Lord, we do thank you. We thank you that we get to gather like this, that we do get to uh, proclaim the excellencies uh, of your worth and your value and your kingdom uh, as we sing songs to you in praise and as we uh, sit under the uh, consideration of your word that we would be encouraged this morning, that our lives would be uh, held up against your word and that we would be able to see our shortcomings, that we might repent of our sin, that we might be reconciled to you, and that we might be strengthened in our faith, that we might find joy in our salvation this morning because of the truth of your word. So we ask these things knowing that you desire to give good gifts to your children. So be near to us this morning, we pray. It's in Christ. Amen. When I was eight or nine years old, I feel like Taylor Swift now. When I was eight or nine, I don't know why, that's, why that reference is helpful, it's not. Let's move on. When I was eight or nine years old, uh, this has been like 81 or two or something. I'm not doing the math right now. But when I was younger, right, uh, we're living in West Texas. We're living in Abilene. And uh, West Texas gets hot. I know it gets hot here, but it gets real hot in West Texas. I'm not trying to make comparisons. McKinney's hot. I get it. West Texas is hot. It was super hot one summer, and our air conditioner wasn't doing uh, what it's supposed to do, which is make the air in your house cold, right? Wasn't doing that ter terribly well. My father did what he knew how to do in terms of trying to figure it out, was unsuccessful, called an air conditioning guy. The air conditioning guy comes out. He takes a look at the unit inside the house. The blower is working fine. The duct work is all intact. Everything seems to be working. 
So he goes outside to look at the compressor unit, which is the kind of unit that sits outside your house and, uh, and blows hot air into the, into the air so that it is able to cool things off and keep the air conditioner running, okay? So he goes out, he's looking at this thing, he tests it, it seems to be working properly, the fan is blowing, there's plenty of coolant in the system, everything seems to be working fine. Uh, so he takes the grill off the outside of this thing to examine uh, the actual unit itself physically, and he finds it's just super dirty, it's filthy, it's just got caked on mud all up in the coils of this thing. Uh, and he starts, he says, oh, well, this is the problem. So he starts to try to clean it, and he realizes that this mud is thick and oily and doesn't come off easily. And he's like, what? This is the dirtiest air conditioner I have ever seen in my life. Steve, come here. Steve is my father's name. He says, Steve, come here, look at this. Look at this thing. It's the filthiest air conditioner that I've ever come in contact with. I don't know what to do with this. And my dad said, was it leaking? Is that what's oily on it? I don't know what it is, man. It's not leaking. There's something gross on here, and it's collecting dirt, and I can't figure it out. And we'll be able to clean it. But do you have any idea how it got this way? And my dad says, and I have no idea. Uh, yeah, I mean, they're both kind of scratching their heads, trying to figure this out. And at that moment, while they're both saying, we have no idea why it's like this, my mother is backing her car out of the garage. And the answer to their question is revealed as the car backs out and you see letters on the side of her car uh, in the same oily substance that have also collected dirt. C-A-R-L. And my mother backs out and drives away. And so it turns out that what I had done uh, was gotten bored one afternoon and went rummaging around in my dad's uh, garage and found a can of WD-40. And it's got the long red tube and it goes which is cool. And so I just Man, this is awesome. C-A-R-L on the side of my mom's car. Where else can I spray this? And I go outside and I realize if I spray some of that into the air conditioner, it sucks that in and blows this amazing cloud of stuff into the air. Nice. And ruined the air conditioner. Now it was cleanable, they got it fixed, everything was fine. I'm confident that there was some sort of consequence uh, for that behavior. I don't recall what it was, but I do know this, that my dad had a standing rule, which was, here's the garage. It's filled with my stuff. It's not your stuff, it's my stuff. No touchy. No touchy dad's stuff. If you want to play with tools, if you want to do that, come talk to me, we can look at that. And I was like, he ain't gonna miss no WD-40. I'll put it right back when I'm done. But I was found out. My sin was revealed. Uh, and I had to suffer the consequences. Now, we're talking this morning about parents and their relationship to children, children and their relationships to parents. And so we're gonna look at this in the text. I share that story because uh, it's a great uh, evidence of the fallen state of humanity. In my brokenness and my sin, I chose to do something that was fun uh, simply because I thought I could get away with it. I didn't. And by God's grace, I was found out, my sin was revealed, and I was able to receive the due punishment for my sin. But at the end of the day, there's a call on my life as a child to obey my parents, which is what we're going to talk about. So let's do it. Uh, we've been looking in Ephesians, and we've just been kind of walking through this book. And here we are at the beginning of the last chapter. Uh, we've talked about how uh, Paul was exhorting the church in Ephesus to be unified. He was talking to them about the, the reality that Jews and Gentiles 
need to come alongside one another and walk together in a Christian community. He was talking about the, uh, the reality that the church needs to be about unity, that we need to be working together. And then he starts to talk about let's not return to our sinful ways. Let's not do that. Let's be people who walk in light of who Christ is and what he's done. Let our relationships reflect the beauty of Jesus. And so he begins to address some specific relationships. And so last week and the week before, we talked about husbands and wives and the way that relationship is supposed to look. And today we're talking about parents and children. Now, if you are thinking, well, I don't have kids. It's in for me. I ain't got to listen. You're wrong. This text is for everyone. So everyone in this room either has kids or will have kids or has a parent or had parents or has or has had children. Everyone has been in these relationships at some point or another. You have been a kid. You have been under the authority of adults, most likely your parents. So this text is for all of us to understand how these relationships are supposed to look. So if you don't have kids at this point in your life, don't turn your ears off. This is for you too. So let's jump in. Verse number one. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Now, the first thing we need to notice here is who is Paul addressing? Who's he talking to? Children. He's not talking to parents. He's not saying, hey, parents, here's the stuff your kids need to know. I'm going to tell you, and then you need to go tell them. Paul's talking to children. He's addressing children. And so it stands to reason that Paul's expectation is that when this letter arrives that he sends to Ephesus, and when it gets distributed to other places where it's read to other churches, his expectation is the kids are going to be in the room to hear it so that he can talk to them. And one of the things I'm most encouraged about, about today is that's true for us here at Parkway. Our elementary age kids are in here with us. And I'm glad of that because kids, Paul has something to say to you. God has something to say to you from this text. And what does he have to say? Obey your parents. Have you heard that before, kids? Mmm, it's your favorite. Okay. So, uh, the question then becomes, what is a child? So if he's talking to children, what are those? What are children? And so when we, see, when we find this word that's used in the Bible, it's consistently uh, translated into child or children, and it's never defined. It's never said, it, we're talking about kids, here's what a child is. Because there's this expectation that you know. Just like right now, nobody in here is going, I don't think I know what a child is. You do, you have some idea of what a child is, and so did they. So there was no need for Paul to explain himself, but for that time and that culture, what you have is a child is anyone who's in a household that is not their own, belongs to someone else, and they're under the authority of that person. That person is providing for them, clothing them, feeding them, protecting them. If that's a person uh, that's under that kind of authority, then they're a child. So it's not marked by age, it's marked by status in the home. And so this idea here is that uh, children are anyone who's in the house. Now, for us, we do have a little bit of ambiguity and confusion about when does a child stop being a child because we have all these milestones and we're not sure what they mean. Right? When you hit age 16, you get to start driving a car. When you hit age 18, you get to start voting. When you hit age 21, it's legal for you to drink alcohol. And there's all these milestones that we find in the life of a person. And we say, which of those is when they're an adult? Uh, when, when can they be tried as an adult legally? All these things, it's confusing for us, it was not confusing for them. And it shouldn't be confusing for us. If you're under the authority of another, if you're in their household, then you're a child. Now, in that culture, a young man would remain a child in his uh, parents' household until such time as he was able to acquire some land, build a house, 
gather some assets, some flocks and herds and things like this so that he could go to another man's household and say, I would like to marry your daughter. And that man says, how are you going to provide for her? He says, well, I got this stuff. I got this house. I got this, uh, this uh, herd of sheep. And the father says, all right, we could do this. And then that man gets to marry that woman and start his own household and stop being a child. A young woman would be under the covering and authority of her father in his household until such time as she was married, and that headship would transfer from her father to her husband. So there wasn't any ambiguity or confusion for them about what a child is in some of the ways that it can be for us today. So he's talking to children, but what is he asking them to do? He's asking them to obey. And it's important for us to see here that he's not saying submit, which is what he just got finished talking about with, with husbands and wives. He's not saying children submit to your parents. He's saying obey them. And there's a difference between these two words. It's subtle. There is some crossover. There's some connection between the meanings of these words. But submission has more to do with relationship. Submission has more to do with, I acknowledge that God has given you position and authority, and I will submit myself to you. Obedience is, I see that there are rules and laws that I need to follow, and I will follow them. So obedience is a stronger word than submission. That's what's being used for kids. So kids, you're being asked to do what your parents tell you. So he's saying to obey your parents. He's not asking them to submit. So then the question is, how is he asking them to do this? He's talking to kids. What is he asking them to do? Obey. How is he asking them to do it? In the Lord. Now this phrase is important for us to catch. It's not attached to the word parents. It's attached to the word obey. So it isn't, children, obey your parents in the Lord. As if a child could say, well, my dad's not a believer, and he's kind of rude, and so I don't need to obey him, because he's not in the Lord. That's not where that phrase gets attached. That phrase gets attached to the word obey. You should obey in the Lord. So what does that mean, to obey in the Lord? It kind of coincides with a phrase from the previous passage that we were looking at in chapter 5, verse 22, which says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. And so in this, in this text, we talked about this, how this is a wife submitting to her husband in the same ways that she would submit to the Lord. Same thing true for kids. Kids, obey your parents in the Lord. You obey your parents as you would obey the Lord. And so there is this connotation here that kind of suggests faith. It suggests the idea that if you are in Christ, if you love Jesus, if you are a child of God, then you understand what it means to obey God, and you should obey your parents like that. But have all kids come to faith? They have not. And so there's this kind of forward-looking hope in this. There's this forward-looking hope that says, I hope that my child does indeed come to faith and become a child of God and can therefore rightly submit and obey their parents in the Lord. But if they aren't, if they have not yet come to faith, does that somehow absolve them from this command? It does not. This is a characterization of how they should be obeying, which should be in the Lord. So it can't be done accurately apart from faith, but it can be done. And it has this forward-looking hope. In the book of Colossians, chapter 3, there's a kind of a parallel passage where Paul is saying some of the same things to the church at Colossae. And he says in verse 20 of chapter 3, he says, Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. And so he's basically saying the same thing to kids, except here he's saying, obey your parents all the time in everything. There's no exceptions. If they say it, you do it. That's how this works. Right? And so he doesn't give that same qualification in Ephesians, but he's talking to kids and saying, obey your parents in the Lord, for it pleases him. And we'll talk about why and how it pleases him in a bit. 
So if we go back to the Ephesians text, if we go to back, back to Ephesians 6. So we, he's talking to children. He's telling them that he wants them to obey. He's asking them to do it in the Lord. Now why? Why is he asking kids to do this? For this is right. Now this means exactly what it sounds like. It's good. It's right. It's the way it should be. Right? There was a cultural normative understanding that took place in Greco-Roman society and in first century Judaism, which was kids should obey their parents. This is the norm. This is the expectation. And so Paul is mentioning it here not only to remind them, hey, this is what you already know and expect to see. He's also pulling in. God is affirming that this is right. God is saying to you, this is the right thing to be doing. It is not only socially right. It is not only culturally right. God is affirming that it's right. These are the words of God. We're reading scripture. And so when God says it's right, it is. When God says it, it's true. And so obedience to parents, what it becomes is a training ground for obedience to God. For a child to learn to obey their parents is them learning how to obey God. It's training. I'm going to give you a couple of analogies. And the kinds of analogies I've chosen fit with my personality perfectly. They're sports analogies. I know nothing about sports. I don't care about sports. I don't watch sports. I don't understand sports. Here comes some sports analogies. <laughs> T-ball. T-ball is a game that you play in preparation for real baseball, right? When you play T-ball, it's everybody saying, hey, if these kids play baseball, somebody's getting hurt, right? Nobody can throw the ball accurately. They're going to hurt somebody. Nobody has the coordination to hit a ball that's flying through the air. So let's just put this thing on a stick so it sits perfectly still and let the kids just whack at it, and it'll be so fun. And then they'll get a taste for the game and an excitement for it and an eagerness to learn how to do it right. And then they'll graduate to coach pitch where an adult is throwing the ball so that the kids aren't getting hurt. But now they've got the coordination to hit it. And then they'll get even more excitement about the game and they'll graduate to full-on baseball where an actual kid, member of the team, is throwing the ball at the other kids and they're hitting it, right? This is the same idea. It's training ground. When children learn to obey their parents, they are thereby learning how to obey God. Obedience to parents is obedience to God. And so they're training themselves in righteousness as they learn to obey their parents. Another analogy, gymnastics. Let's say a gymnast wants to learn how to do a triple flippy twister, <laughs> which is one of the newest uh, requirements for the floor routine in the Olympics. Next time, you may not have heard of it. Some of us keep up with sports better than others. But <laughs> a gymnast wants to learn the triple flippy twister, they're not just going to go out on the mat and try it. They're going to do it into a foam pit first, a big hole in the ground filled with big pieces of foam so that when they do the triple flippy twister unsuccessfully, they land in the foam and they don't get hurt. And they climb out and they try it again. They do it again and again, and when they finally think they got it, then they come over here and they try it on the floor. The same idea. Children are training themselves how to obey God by obeying their parents. And so, kids, if you want to know how to obey God, practice by obeying your parents. This is where it begins. Sweet sports analogies. Now, God takes this stuff really seriously. This is not just, hey kids, it's a pretty good idea to obey your parents, it's not that big a deal, but I want you to do it, but let's get on to the more important things. God takes this really, really seriously. Let's look at a couple of texts that demonstrate this. Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 28, 
says this. Now, Paul is talking about the unrighteous, those who are separated from God, those who have heard and seen the truth and have rejected it. And he says, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, what? they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. Now, all sin deserves death. And this idea of disobedience to parents is indeed sin because God commands it of us. And so God is taking this really seriously. He's talking about this list of offenses against God. They're heinous and awful. We read those words and say, I don't want to be those things. And disobedience to parents isn't there. 2 Timothy chapter 3, another similar list where Paul's talking to Timothy and he's telling him about the last days and says, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents ungrateful, holy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. Man, God thinks really seriously about this. God takes this idea of obedience to parents seriously, and so should we. Kids, we've got to take this seriously. This is for real. God's not playing around. He wants us to obey our parents. Let's move on to verse 2. Verse 2, honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. So the first word here is honor, which simply means to kind of show respect and deference to. It's a recognition of a position and authority and saying that is a good and right thing, and I want to honor it. I want to respect it. Examples of honor with kids, obedience. When you obey your parents' kids, you are showing them honor. You are recognizing the status and position that God has given to them, and you're honoring it through your obedience. Another way that, uh, that kids can show honor is that you will have tons of opportunities to badmouth your parents. You'll be hanging out with your friends, and one of them will say, man, my dad is so rude. He didn't even let me play my Xbox this weekend. And I was like, whatever, Dad. I ain't even talking to him. He texted me, but I ain't responding. What about your dad? And a kid who says, I'm not going to talk bad about my dad. I love him. I want to honor him. There's things that upset me and I don't like, sure. But I love that man. I'm going to honor him. Yeah, tell me about your mom then. Nope, I'm not going to do that either. There's an opportunity to honor your parents when you get together with your friends who want to talk bad about their parents. Another place, kids, you can honor your folks is caring for them when they get old. <laughs> yeah, that's coming for you, okay? But it's coming for all of us. And you see it all the time. And when you see it and it isn't you, it's amazing, it's astounding to see someone who would say, I've got this life, I've got this marriage, I've got these kids, I've got this job, I've got these responsibilities, <coughs> but my parents, they're sick, they need my help. I'm gonna hit pause on my life and I'm gonna go care for them because I'm gonna honor them. 
This is part of the reality of a, a, a person who understands what God has given to them in their parents, who understands the relationship that's been given, the gift of parenting, and how much to honor it. It's not easy, but it's good. Honoring parents is something that kids are being asked to do. Now, it says honor who? Father and mother. Now, Paul is addressing in this text, as he always does, the ideal, the norm, the way that God has created a family to be, which is a father and mother and some children. We recognize that that's not always the case. So he is indeed speaking of biological parents when he says this is who you should honor. But this would apply to an adopted set of parents. This would apply to a set of adults who brought kids into their home they're not related to at all. They haven't adopted them, but they're just caring for them. We go back and we think about how we defined a child, which is anybody who's in a household that, that is being cared for and supplied for and protected by someone else. That's who this text is talking to. That's who he's speaking about, who you should honor. So an adopted kid cannot rightly say, you're not my real dad. They can say it, but they're wrong. The scriptures would affirm that is indeed the father you should honor. This goes for grandparents, adopted parents, any guardians, anybody who is running a household that the child is part of, and they have to submit themselves to. Now, Paul goes on to say, this is the first commandment with a promise. What's he talking about? He's pointing back to the Decalogue, to the Ten Commandments. He's pointing back to Exodus chapter 20, where the Ten Commandments are given. And the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother, does indeed have a promise attached to it. And Paul is looking at the entire Mosaic law here. So if we look at this, we see that the second commandment also has some additional text that goes along with it that theoretically could be interpreted as a promise, but it's really more of a just description of God's character. Tell me, here's what I'm going to do if you, if you create idols. It's not going to go well. Don't create idols and worship them. But the fifth commandment does indeed carry this promise with it. But if we look at the Ten Commandments, there aren't any others that have promises. It's just this one. So why is Paul saying first one with a promise? It's because he's thinking of the entire Mosaic Law. The Ten Commandments are the beginning of the Mosaic Law. He goes on, and he's thinking of the entire law. There are other commandments with promises. This is the first one. So let's look at verse 3. Let's add verse 3 to this. The promise is that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. So here's the promise from Exodus 20. In Exodus 20, verse 12, it says this. Honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. So let's look back now at Ephesians 6.3. It's very similar, but the language has been changed just a little bit. Paul's leaving a little bit off of the original text. He's not saying the land your Lord your God is giving you because that promise applies to Israel in the desert awaiting the promised land. The promise that he's pulling forward and saying this is still good for you is the promise that it's going to go well for you and you'll live long in whatever land you're in. So what does the promise mean? There's a lot of debate about this. There's a lot of debate about what exactly does this promise really mean? And there's, there is a, one position that would say it's completely spiritual. Paul is only saying that it's going to go well with you because in eternity we will just worship God forever and be awesome and happy uh, and that you'll live long in the land because you're going to be with God forever. That's only spiritual. God, that, that Paul is not speaking of anything literal. 
And there's another camp that would say, no, it's totally literal. God is saying to us, obey your parents, and things are going to go well. Prosperity's coming your way. You're going to have a lot of money. You're going to have a big house. Things are going to go awesome for you, and you're going to live to your 120. And neither of those are accurate. Paul is indeed speaking of genuine longevity. He is genuinely speaking of good circumstances. But this is more of a general promise. It's not something specific. It's not saying, hey, kids, here's the deal. You want to live to your 115 or 120? And you want to have a ton of money? Just obey your parents. Man, that's all you need to do. That's not what he's saying. It's a general promise. In much the same way that we find kind of general ideas of promises in things like Proverbs. Proverbs 22, this says, train up a child on the way they should go. And when they are old, they will not depart from it. That sounds like, man, as a parent, all I've got to do is be faithful to read the Bible, pray with my kids, pray for my kids, point them to Jesus, tell them the story of the Bible, help them to understand it. And my kids are going to come to faith. Done. And I don't even have to worry about it if they don't come to faith in my home because when they grow old, they won't depart from it. Man, that's sweet. But that's not what that text is, is meaning. It's a general promise. It is not a problem. There are plenty of children who have indeed been raised in faithful Christian homes that have not come to faith and they're wayward. Their parents continue to pray for them in their adulthood. So that promise is not a one-to-one -one thing. It's not do this and you'll get this. Same thing with this promise that, that Paul is pulling out of Exodus and bringing forward. He's not saying, obey your parents, everything's going to go awesome. He's not saying, you will indeed live into old age by our standards if you obey your parents. There are tons of children who have been faithful to obey their parents, who have honored their parents well, and their lives have been cut short. This is a tough text. This is difficult. But the promise is a general one. So let's look at the first half of verse number four. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. So he's talking to fathers, and there will be this desire for us to say, well, he said fathers, but what he really means is parents. No, what he really means is fathers, because he said fathers. There's a word for parents, and he didn't use it. He said fathers, not because the dads are the only ones that have any influence or responsibility in the rearing of children or the discipleship of children, but rather, Paul is recognizing the position of fathers in the home. In the same way that husbands have been given a position of authority, a role to play in their marriage, they've been given a role to play in their home. They bear the weight and responsibility of what takes place. They will give an account for their households. And Paul is acknowledging this by speaking to the fathers and saying, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Now here's what's interesting. This would have been shocking to the people who heard this for the first time. Because generally speaking, in this culture, in this time, there was a ton of latitude given to fathers in the way that they could discipline their kids. You could do almost anything, to the point of death even. Fathers could do whatever they want. And so the idea was, kids, don't provoke your father to anger. Watch out. Even the scriptures would speak of God, that we ought not to provoke God to wrath. We ought not to provoke his anger. And so the idea typically was, the thought was, don't provoke the anger of the one who has the authority, the one who has all of the power. But what Paul is saying is, don't provoke the one who's under authority, the one who has to submit, the one who has to obey. Don't provoke them to anger. So this idea has been flipped around, and it's upside down, and it would have been confusing and shocking to the hearers to hear this. So this is not saying to you, parents, fathers, that your child being upset that your child being angry, 
But that's somehow the call. If your child cries, if your child doesn't like your decisions, if your child is upset or angry or, or throwing a fit, then somehow you're a bad parent. That's not what's being said here. The idea is not talking about what your child's response to your authority is, but rather how you wield it. It's how you exercise discipline. Who here has ever played a video game in your entire life? That's what I'm talking about. The rest of you are liars. <laughs> Maybe not. In the early 80s, there was one of the first home video game systems ever invented called Atari, the Atari 2600. Mm, memories, okay. So this thing had some games and they were fun because it, I mean, it was inherently fun because you got to play video games at home. Everybody was super excited about that. But what everybody was really excited about was the idea that we knew that coming soon would be games that were not just games that were made for home play, but there were games that were like the ones we played at the arcade. Kids, here's what an arcade is. An arcade was a place that you went to play video games because you didn't have them at home. There were these big gigantic machines and you would put a quarter in them and you could play the game for 30 to 60 seconds and then you had to put another quarter in because you, you lost and you had to play again. You didn't just get to start over. And so you would go to these places and hang out with your friends all afternoon. And so we were looking forward to those games being available on the Atari at home. And I knew Pac-Man was coming. And I was so excited and I talked to my dad and I said, Dad, man, you've got to get Pac-Man. It's only like $4 billion. <laughs> and he's like, I'll look into it. So he looks into it, he finds out that there's a way to pre-order it, he pre-orders it. He tells me, I'm so psyched, Pac-Man's coming. And so every single night, when he comes to tuck me in, Dad, is Pac-Man here? Son, when it comes, it comes. He's gotta wait, I'm like, okay. But I knew the date was getting near, and so the, the closer it got, the more anxious I got. And then it got to the point where I just couldn't handle the pressure any longer. And this night came, my father comes and tucked me in. I said, Dad, is Pac-Man here? And he goes, it'll be here when it gets here. And he starts to leave the room. And I get angry at him because he's not, I don't know, giving me more information. I don't know. I got really angry and I grab my pillow and I throw it at him in anger. And I had this really fancy chemistry set on my desk and I smashed it with the pillow, glass everywhere. Now, I'm super angry in this moment. Has my father been unfaithful? Has he been sinful? Has he provoked me to anger? No, that's my own sin coming out. So it's not the idea that your child being upset or angry is the issue. That's not the measuring stick. The measuring stick is, are you being faithful to wield the authority that God has given you in a way that's consistent with his word? Provoking your children to anger is you demonstrating a, a desire to make yourself the center of the universe. It is a desire to make you the arbiter of all things instead of God's word. It's the desire to make yourself God for your kids. And so for us to wield this authority with humility and grace and patience and wisdom is what God is speaking to us about. He's saying don't provoke your children to anger by demonstrating that you are the center rather than God, by teaching your children a false narrative, by teaching your kids that what they need to do is watch out for number one, and number one is death. But instead, that they need to lovingly submit themselves to Christ because he is the author and perfecter of faith, because he is the only good thing to be worshiped, that we should point our kids to this, 
to provoke our children to anger would be to not teach them what is true, but to teach them what is false. This is what it means to provoke a child to anger. So it isn't about if your kid throws a fit at Walmart because you didn't let them get the sucker at the checkout. Don't get them the sucker. It's fine. And they're going to freak out. And that is not provoking them to anger. You're still being faithful. Now, second half of verse 4. So Paul says, don't do this, but do this. But bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Bring them up means to train them. Means to raise them up, to uh, equip them with right knowledge about who God is and what he's done. And when we think about the word train, right, when we think about uh, raising someone up, we tend to think about things like physical training or military training or something like this. But it's nothing like that. So we don't have a slide for this text, but I want to look back in Ephesians chapter 5. In Ephesians chapter 5, talking about husbands and wives... It says in verse 28, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Verse 29, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Now that word nourish and the word bring, for bring up a ch- bringing up your children, bring them up, it's the same Greek word. So when we think of bringing up our children, we should be thinking nourish, cultivate It is not a brutal training. It is a cultivation. It is an investment. It is hard, heart work to do with a child to train them up and bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So it's an idea of a cultivating work that we're doing to bring our children up. So bring them up in what? In the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Not the discipline and instruction of Carl. Not the discipline and instruction of mom and dad. The discipline and instruction of the Lord. And where is his discipline and instruction found? In his word. So to bring your children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord means to bring them up in the word of God. It's not to teach them, I am the ultimate authority and I will destroy you if you disobey me. But it's to point to the word of God and say, this is where instruction is found. This is where your discipline is found. This is where goodness is found. To point them to the word. So for us to bring our children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord means that we're to bring them up in an environment where the word of God is held high. That it should be read. It should be cherished. It should be steeped in the word of God. It should permeate everything we do. Every conversation we have. We're supposed to be disciple makers in our home. When Jesus is about to return to the Father... And, while, and now we're waiting for him to return. He says, go and make disciples of all nations. And we sometimes forget. That starts in our living room. We are supposed to be disciple makers. We're supposed to be training these kids up in the truth of God's word and making disciples of them. So what do we need to take away from this? Kids, for you, God wants you to obey. He wants you to obey your parents. He wants you to honor them. This is what he asks. These are the commands that God gives to you directly. And it's not easy. Obeying your parents isn't easy. Honoring them is not easy. It's difficult. Parents, fathers in particular, we are not to provoke our children to anger. We're supposed to wield the authority God has given us with grace and humility and patience. 
So I've got a few questions for you all to think about. For kids, do you obey your parents? Do you do it? And if you do, why? Why do you do it? The scriptures would say that you should do it in the Lord. That should be the motivation for you to do it. But is that your motivation or do you just want to stay out of trouble? But let me encourage you. That's how it begins. You begin by obeying because you just don't want to get in trouble. And over time, the Lord is gracious to teach you that obeying your parents is indeed what's best for you. And your motives will change as he changes your heart. Kids, do you truly honor your parents? Do you honor them? Do you understand and believe that the position that God has given them is good and right and valuable? Parents, is the word of God held in high esteem in your home? Is it the final authority for your family's lives? And if it is, do your kids know that? Your kids know that the scriptures are where you're going to turn as the final authority for your household. Do you read God's word? Do you read it with your family? Are there times when you pray together as a family? And when you say to yourself, yes, let me add to that, do you do it apart from mealtimes? Mealtimes is not bad, it's good. But do you pray together as a family? Do you ask the Lord to bless your household? Do you ask him to strengthen your resolve? Do you ask him to help you to believe, strengthen your faith? Parents, do you have conversations with your kids that center on the things of God? Or do your conversations center around their social lives? How was your day at school? How are things with that friend of yours? But are you having those conversations in light of the word of God? Are you helping to train them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord in those moments too? So kids, if you want to do these things for the right reasons, there's hope for you. It can, it can happen, but you can't do it. Parents, if you want your children to obey for the right reasons, if you want your children to come to faith, you have to remember how salvation works. It works for your kids the same way it worked for you. You were dead in your trespasses. You were not alive. You could do nothing. And the Spirit of God came and made you alive. You were born again. You were given new life and then given an ability to respond to the call of God through faith. And that faith is not something you made. It was something he gave to you. Salvation belongs to God. If you want it for your kids, he's the only place to go. Your kids cannot come to the Father through you. There's one way to the Father. It's through Christ. Our hope needs to be in him only. Kids, if you want this, if you desire to know and love Christ, your parents can't give it to you. They can help you. They can pray with you. They can help teach you what it means. But God only can give you faith. He's who you should ask. You should ask him. Ask him for help. Ask him to save you. Ask him to change you that you might obey your parents in a way that is genuinely in the Lord. It's a good thing to ask for. Salvation belongs to God, him only. So as we think about this text, 
It's easy to look at it and be like, yep, kids should be obedient. Yep, I should not be uh, a rude parent. I get it. But there's more going on here. There's an opportunity for us parents to be faithful disciple makers of our children. Children, there's an opportunity for you to become a part of this family that meets in this room. That you might not just be some kid who comes with their parents to church, but that you would be a part of this church. That God might rescue you and save you and call you unto himself, give you the gift of faith. He loves to do that. He wants to do that. So I'm going to go ahead and ask the deacons to come forward for communion. And I'm going to pray. Father, we come this morning and we thank you uh, that you're good and you're gracious and you're kind and you're merciful and you are slow to anger and you're abounding in steadfast love. And so, Lord, we come and we say we need you. We cannot be faithful children in a household obeying our parents without your help. We cannot be faithful parents to raise our children in the discipline and in the instruction of the Lord according to your word without you. We cannot be faithful members of a church who love and support and serve the families of our church together without you. We can't do anything good apart from you. And so we come and we ask for you to be near to us this morning. Will you strengthen our faith this morning? Will you help us to be a family of God that meets in this little building that brings great glory to the name of Jesus Christ through the way that we love one another, the way that we serve one another, the way that we help one another, and the way that we honor you, the way that we bring glory to you. We're grateful to you that you have given us all that we need to know about everything you want us to know about. You've given us your word. So we pray that it indeed would be the source of our wisdom, the source of our knowledge. Uh, Lord, that it would be the motivation for us to do what you've asked us to do. Help us, we need you. It's in Christ that we pray. Amen.